Good morning, Plum Creek. It's great to see all of you here today. If you are new to our church, we're really glad you came. You picked a great Sunday to be here. We're going through a long series called The Gospel, and it's a journey through the life and the ministry of Jesus in in chronological order. And we've come to a really good part of the story. In, In the middle of this big gospel series, we're in a smaller series called Awestruck. And we're looking at these moments when Jesus said something or did something that left people in complete awe. And actually, that's what happens whenever anyone gets a clearer view of Jesus. A clearer view of Jesus will fill you with awe more than anything else you could find in this world. So by the time we leave here this morning, my prayer is that all of us will be able to see Jesus more clearly and that we'll have a deeper understanding of what he wants to do in our lives. And I believe that can happen today. i got to tell you, I have been looking forward to preaching this message all week. Uh, we're going to look at the story where Jesus fed 5,000 people with a couple of fish and five loaves of bread. And I'll be honest with you, when I saw this passage coming up on our preaching calendar, I wasn't particularly excited It is a good story, but I've just heard it so many times. But you know what? As I studied this week, the the more I learned, the more excited I got. And now, I just can't wait to share with you what I've seen in this passage. So let's dive in. If you have a Bible with you, open up to John chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along up on the screen. Now, like I've said before, On this journey through the life of Jesus, we're drawing from all four gospel books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And today's story is unique because it's the only miracle of Jesus that is recorded in all four gospels except for the resurrection. And today we're mostly going to hear John's side of the story, but occasionally we'll hear from the other guys too. But let's start with John chapter 6, verse 1. John says, Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias. And if you were here last week, you remember the Sea of Galilee, right? That's the body of water up on the northern part of Israel. It's where Jesus calmed the storm. So they crossed the Sea of Galilee, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. Okay, let's stop right there for a second. We need to get our bearings. The ministry of Jesus was about three years altogether. And this story takes place at the end of year two. So we're we're about one year away from the crucifixion and the resurrection. And at this point in Jesus' ministry, He is at the height of his popularity. He draws a crowd wherever he goes. He is a celebrity. And you know, a lot of people think they would love to be famous, but when you learn about the everyday life of a celebrity, it's exhausting. Because sometimes you just want to go out and have dinner without someone hounding you for an autograph. And sometimes you want to get in and out of the grocery store without worrying about the paparazzi. But This is kind of where Jesus is. He's doing great things, and it's great to see people responding, but his ministry is also very draining. 
That's especially true in the time frame right before today's story. Jesus is coming out of a season that is very busy and very intense. It was a time of highs and lows. On the high side, the 12 apostles had just returned from a special mission. Jesus had sent them out to preach the gospel and heal the sick. And they came back from that mission all excited. They were like, Jesus, it was amazing. God actually used us to perform miracles. So that was great. But about that same time, Jesus got a visit from several disciples of John the Baptist. And those disciples brought devastating news. John the Baptist was dead. He was beheaded by a ruler named Herod. And you know, Jesus loved John. They were blood relatives. They were close friends. So this news would have filled Jesus with grief. You have these intense emotions side by side. Great joy for the apostles and deep sorrow over John's death. And in the aftermath of this, gr- this crazy season, Jesus understandably wants to take a break. So he says to his disciples, let's go find a quiet place and get some rest. And this is why they crossed the Sea of Galilee. Mark 6.32 says, so they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. And that sounds good, right? Sounds like a smart thing to do. There was one problem, though. When you're a celebrity, people don't care if you need some time away. Look at verse 33. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. So this is the background for the miracle we're about to see. Those thousands of hungry people were crazy fans running after Jesus while he's trying to get away. I'm not sure I understood that in the past. This whole situation is far less than ideal. And before we go on, I want to think about this crowd for a second. It's a very large group of people. This passage tells us there were 5,000 men, but that doesn't include women or children. So what do you think the total number was? Some commentators say 15,000 or more, but then other scholars say 15,000 is too high. They say in the culture of that time, it's unlikely that many Jewish men would, would bring out their entire families to a remote place to listen to a rabbi. But I do want to use at least a rough estimate here, so let's split the difference and go with about 10,000. Now, what does 10,000 people look like? It's kind of tough to get that picture in your mind, so I looked up the capacity of several arenas and stadiums in our area, and I discovered that just up the road at NKU, the BB&T arena seats 9,400 people. So we'll use this example. Uh, Picture this arena at full capacity, and that would give you a pretty good idea of how many people are in this crowd. And let's use our imaginations and, and take this just a little further. As you look at this picture from NKU, imagine that Jesus is standing right there at center court, and everybody is in the seats just staring at him, waiting for him to do something awesome. And remember, he's tired. He's drained. He's not in the mood to face this mass of humanity. So in that moment, how do you think Jesus felt about those people? What was his response to this crowd that was intruding into his life and cutting into his time of rest? Well, Scripture actually tells us exactly how Jesus felt. 
But before we get to that, let's put ourselves in his shoes for a second. Imagine that you are standing at that spot right next to Jesus. And then let's say all of those seats are full of people that you find annoying or rude or downright offensive. So who would that be? Let's get specific. Think about the political party that you are not a part of. In other words, the wrong party. How would you feel if you were surrounded by that group of people? What emotions would you have toward that crowd? Or we could trade that group out for someone different. You could also think about a particular generation that just gets on your nerves, or a nationality, or an ethnic group that feels very different or even dangerous. You could think about 10,000 refugees or immigrants. However you decide to fill, fill those seats, imagine how you would feel as those faces are staring back at you. Now, if you've got that in your mind, let's see how Jesus responded. Mark 6, 34. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. Wow. Jesus is something else, isn't he? Like I've said many times, there has never been anyone like Jesus and there never will be. And we can see a couple of important lessons here. First, if you are a follower of Jesus, this is the example that God calls you to follow. Pick a crowd, any crowd, it doesn't matter. They may be annoying, rude, offensive, even scary. But if you are following the example of Jesus, you will look at those people with compassion. You will pray and ask God to bless those people. Now, if that seems completely beyond you, that's okay. God knows if, if we are going to love like him, we need help. So you can start with a prayer. You can say, Lord, please work on my heart. Fill me with your compassion. But there's a different lesson for here for anyone who is not yet a follower of Jesus. And I want you to get this message loud and clear. If you are not a Christian, or if you are far from God right now, or if you are actively running away from God, this is how he looks at you. He's not thinking, I can't believe you. I can't believe what you've done. I don't want anything to do with you. No, he, he looks at you with compassion. He wants to guide you and protect you in the same way that a shepherd takes care of his sheep. So if you have a hard time believing that, there's a prayer you can pray as well. You can say, Lord, please help me understand and experience the love that you have for me. And this is the first takeaway from our story today. Even though we don't deserve it, Jesus looks at all of us with compassion. And the more we grow to become like him, the more we'll have that same compassion for others. All right, we need to get back to the story. So this huge crowd shows up and Jesus begins to teach them and everybody's having a good time. Before you know it, though, it starts to get late. Luke chapter 9, verse 12 says, Late in the afternoon, the twelve came to him and said, Send the crowd away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging because we are in a remote place here. Now, you have to give the disciples some credit. They're trying to be proactive. They realize if they don't get ahead of this situation, things could get ugly. 
And you know, their plan is actually pretty good. I've been to many conferences where this is exactly what they do. After a main session or two, it's time, to, it's time to take a break, and the organizers send you out for lunch or dinner on your own. And that's all the disciples want to do. Maybe Peter could stand up and say, Hey, everybody, it's been a great conference so far. We've had a great speaker, Jesus Christ. And so go have some dinner, get some sleep, come back in the morning for our next main session. That plan was not unreasonable. It's, you know, anywhere from 3 to 5 p.m. at this point, and they're only a few miles away from the nearest towns. I really think this plan would have worked out fine. However, Jesus has a very different plan. Let's go back to John chapter 6. Verse 5 says, When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. And Philip answered him, It would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? So Jesus doesn't explain his plan right away. He uses this opportunity to help the disciples grow in their faith. So first, Jesus goes to Philip with a question. He gives Philip a test. He says, where do you think we can get enough bread to feed these people? I picture Jesus saying this with just the tiniest smile. And you know, we we shouldn't think of this as a pass-fail kind of test. Jesus is just looking for faith. Have the disciples finally learned to trust Jesus, or are they still being slow? It's like I said last week, by this point, the disciples have already seen Jesus perform lots and lots of miracles. They had every reason to believe that Jesus could solve any problem they could ever possibly face. But right here, Philip still doesn't have much faith. He's too much of a realist. He's like, I don't know, Jesus, I did some quick calculations, and feeding all these people would cost way more than what we have. So that's Philip. And then there's Andrew. It seems like Andrew actually does have a little faith, but not much. Did you notice? Andrew's faith actually gives out in the middle of a sentence. (laughs) He says, Jesus, I found something, I found something. It's just this kid's lunchable. (laughs) I don't think that's going to go very far. Never mind. And at first, Andrew thought Jesus could do something with this. Otherwise, why even bring it up? But very quickly, he gets pessimistic. A lot of us can relate to that, right? A lot of us understand Andrew or Philip here. Compared to the need, this boy's lunch was puny. Uh, These barley loaves are very small probably about four inches across. Barley loaves were known as a food of the poor. And then there's the fish. In verse 9, John uses a Greek word that refers to a kind of fish that was pickled and, and used as a relish for bread. Probably the closest comparison we'd have today is canned sardines. So yeah, the disciples would look down at this sad little snack, and then they'd look out at those thousands of people, and they'd be thinking, Jesus, can we go back to our plan? But of course, Jesus loves this kind of stuff. He knows that we don't bring much to the table. 
He knows that we don't have what it takes to meet all of our needs and solve all of our problems. But that's the point. When we take what little we have and bring it to Jesus, he'll, he'll take that offering and he can do something great. That's why the little boy is one of the heroes of this story. The boy didn't allow what he didn't have to keep him from giving what he did have. Because, you know, the boy didn't have to give up that Lunchable. When Andrew walked up and said that Jesus wanted his food, he could have said, sorry, sir, this is my whole lunch. It's not going to help you anyway. Or the boy could have just ran into the crowd and disappeared. But that's not what he did. The boy gave us an example of what God wants to do with us. You may look at your talent or your time or your treasure and you may feel like you don't have much to bring to the table either. But look at the rest of the Gospels. Look at the whole Bible. Over and over again, God uses the weak and the poor and the ordinary and the outcast. So let's not focus on what we don't have. Let's go to God with the little that we do have and give him the chance to do something big. But now it's time for Jesus to put his plan into motion. Let's pick up the story in John 6, verse 10. Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. So there's the miracle. Those hungry people are now happy people. But did you notice something? There's a little gap in this story. John doesn't tell us how Jesus performed this miracle. Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't tell us either. All we know is that Jesus prayed. He thanked God for the food. And then they start passing out bread and fish to this huge crowd. So how did that work? Did everyone see this food multiply before their eyes? I've tried to imagine what this looked like, and I literally have no idea. And you know, I think that's kind of intentional too. I think Jesus is teaching another lesson here. Jesus shows us that God is able to meet all of our needs, and he also wants to meet our needs. We don't know how Jesus did what he did, just like we don't know how God will provide for our needs today. We just need to trust him. But this is another way that we're like the disciples. The disciples should have had a strong faith by this point because they saw Jesus perform many, many miracles. But we have also seen God do many great things in our lives. If you're not sure about that, Make a list of every good thing that has ever happened to you. Make a list of every blessing that you've ever received. The truth is, every single one of those blessings came from God. Every good gift comes from Him. So yeah, God is able to provide absolutely everything that we need with plenty left over. And why would we doubt that? He is the almighty creator of the universe. He created everything out of nothing. And do you see here? Jesus does the same thing in this story. He turns 
five loaves into thousands of loaves. He turns two fish into thousands of fish. This is actually a mini version of creation. This crowd got to witness a creative power that can only come from God. And because of that, the people start to see Jesus in a whole new light. Look at verse 14. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. So, they figured it out. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Holy One of God. This is great, right? Unfortunately, no. This is not great. Because this crowd does not have a clear view of Jesus. They still don't understand Him at all. You see, the crowd saw Jesus as the Messiah because he was finally acting, out, acting like the Messiah they were looking for. They were looking for a leader who would magically provide everything they wanted. You know, free lunch was a good start. But then they had much bigger ideas. Look at verse 15. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. So this is what the Jews wanted. They were tired of being oppressed by the Roman Empire, and and they wanted a king who could lead a revolt and bring freedom and prosperity. But do you see what they're trying to do to Jesus? They're trying to turn him into some kind of a vending machine. And vending machines are great, right? You walk up, you put in a little money, push a couple of buttons, and then bam, you get a bag of Funyuns. You get what you want. But You know, that's not who Jesus is at all. If you're looking to Jesus to give you what you want, then he's not the king of your life. You're still in control. You're still the boss or the master or the Lord. And Jesus will never allow himself to be put into that position for two reasons. Number one, he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And no one deserves to have his rightful place on the throne of your life. But then there's reason number two. When you and I do get what we want, it's not good. We often think we know what is best, but the truth is we don't. God has a higher understanding of what we really need. There are many situations where we say, God, here's what I want. Please give me this. And he says, Sorry, that's not what you need. That's not what is best. And even though he does that for our own good, it can be a tough pill to swallow. We struggle to surrender our desires to God. We struggle to give up control. And that's exactly what happens with this crowd. On the day of the miracle, they loved Jesus because he gave them what they wanted. But Jesus is about to tell them a few things they don't want to hear. He's about to give them a clearer picture of who he really is. And this is the part of the story that I never got in Sunday school. Check this out. After everybody gets full of bread and fish, Jesus dismisses the crowd and he walks up a mountain by himself. When night comes, the apostles get in a boat and they set off for the other side of the Sea of Galilee, back where they came from. Jesus was not with them. But this is the night when Jesus walked on the water to meet the disciples. That's a great story too, but we'll save that one for another day. The next morning, 
in that place where Jesus fed the 5,000, the crowd wakes up and they discover that he and the disciples have gone. So a bunch of them take off in a fleet of boats and they search for Jesus until they find him on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. These guys are relentless, aren't they? So let's go back to John 6 and see what happens. Verse 25, when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. All right, Jesus is starting to call them out here. He says, yes, you liked the free food, but you missed the whole point. Remember, God has a higher understanding of what we really need. And the point of this miracle was not the food itself. Jesus wants them to look beyond the fish, beyond the flesh. He wants them to seek eternal life. And we should stop to consider what Jesus means when he says eternal life. Usually when we hear that phrase, eternal life, we, we think it's about what happens after you die. It, it's about living with God forever in heaven. And that's certainly a part of what Jesus is talking about here, but that's not a complete picture. You see, in the Greek language, there's more than one word for life. One of those words is bios. It's where we get our word biology. And the definition of bios is very basic. It's just the state of being alive. And this word tells us nothing about the quality of life. It's just surviving. You can have bios and be miserable. You can have bios and feel completely empty. But that's not the word that Jesus uses here. He uses the word zoe, which means the absolute fullness of life. It's the difference between just existing and really living. And that's the kind of life that Jesus offers. It's, it's a life of satisfaction and joy. And we don't have to wait until heaven for that. We can start to experience that kind of life here and now. So, yes, Jesus is frustrated with this crowd because they're seeking him for the wrong reasons. They're ready to settle for barley loaves and sardines when he came to give them eternal life. Jesus is saying, listen, I am the one thing that will satisfy you. Anything that is not me will never satisfy you. Man, that is so true. In your life, where do you go to find meaning or fulfillment or satisfaction? Whenever we try to find those things outside of Jesus, we're going to be disappointed. Let's say you work really hard and you try to be successful because you believe success will make you feel like somebody, like you really matter. So what happens if you find that success? Well, you can ask anyone who's been there. It's not enough. It's never enough. Or maybe you're out there looking for a perfect relationship. You're looking for a guy or a girl who will complete you. But what happens when you fall in love and get married? Sooner or later, you discover, even in a great marriage, that person can't give you what you're looking for. So no matter where you turn, 
Anything other than Jesus will not provide what you're looking for. We're looking for that full and abundant life that only Jesus gives. Not bios, but Zoe. So this is what Jesus is trying to communicate to this crowd. Jesus wants them to know that he is not only the giver of this spiritual and eternal bread. The giver of the bread is himself the bread. Look at verse 35. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Now right here, the crowd starts to get confused because Jesus is sounding a little weird. (laughs) Up to this point, it all kind of made sense. Sort of like, okay, Jesus, you showed us that you can feed us physically by creating physical bread. We get that. And then you told us that you can feed us spiritually by giving us eternal life. We get that too. But now you're telling us you are the bread? What are you talking about? Now, it's a little easier for us to understand this because we know what's coming. About a year after this, Jesus goes to the cross. He takes our place. He suffers the punishment of death, the punishment that we deserve to suffer because of our sin. But because Jesus loves us, he chooses to die. His body is broken for us. And that's how Jesus is the bread of life. Think about it this way. Think about the food that we eat every day. Outside of a few exceptions like salt, everything we eat has to die so that we can live. If you're going to eat a carrot, that carrot has to die. If you're going to eat a piece of bacon, the pig has to die. And God bless that pig. But do you see the connection? This is exactly what Jesus did for us. He is the bread of life. A preacher named Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, if the bread remains whole, you're going to fall to pieces because you're going to starve. But for you to be made whole, the bread must be broken. The bread must fall to pieces. Jesus died so that we can live. He is the bread of life. And not just a bios kind of life, but a Zoe kind of life. So what we need is not just the good gifts that Jesus provides. What we really need is Jesus himself. Now, like I said, it's a little easier for us to understand that Jesus is the bread of life because we know about the cross. We also know about communion. The Lord's Supper. We know that the bread represents the body of Jesus and the cup represents the blood of Jesus. We eat the bread and we drink from the cup because we remember his sacrifice. But this crowd doesn't know about any of that. And that's tough because this is the day when Jesus introduces the idea of the Lord's Supper. And let me tell you, this idea does not go over well with this crowd. Not at all. Listen to this. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Yikes. (laughs) Without any context, that statement would be shocking to any audience, but especially to this Jewish crowd. They are incredibly offended. They find this teaching repulsive, and that's really sad because they're clueless as to what he's really talking about. But you know, 
if they had decided to stick around and really listen. Jesus would have been happy to explain what all of this means, but they didn't stick around. Look at verse 66. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Jesus has been preaching a sermon here. Some call it the bread of life sermon. But when it's over, that large crowd just walks away from Jesus. Some say this is the most unsuccessful sermon ever preached because Jesus starts with thousands and he finishes with just a handful. But you know, Jesus wanted them to understand. He wanted them to receive him as the bread of life. Remember, he looked at this very crowd and he had compassion for them. He makes this offer of eternal life to anyone and everyone, but we do have to receive it. And to receive the life that only comes from Jesus, we must accept him for who he is, not who we want him to be. It was a tragic thing when this crowd rejected Jesus. They just didn't want to hear his hard teaching. They just weren't ready to give him their trust and their allegiance. But the reality is, it's no different today. Jesus has hard teaching for us as well. Remember that example where you're standing in the arena and you're surrounded by these people who are different or uh, intimidating or just hard to love. That's not some abstract concept. Jesus calls us to love everyone even our enemies. That's a hard teaching. He also calls us to forgive others as many times as it takes. That's a hard teaching too. So what are you going to do? Will you listen to him? Will you receive him? Will you follow where he leads even when it's tough? You know, when that crowd walked away from Jesus, he turned to the twelve, and he said, do you want to go away too? And I love Peter's response. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. That's it. I love that. I relate to that so much. Because whenever I've wrestled with doubt, Whenever I've looked other places trying to find peace or satisfaction, whenever I've wanted an easy path, I've learned that there is nothing, there is no one who can take the place of Jesus. So I'm basing my whole life and my whole eternity on him. My prayer is that all of us will do the same. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I thank you so much for Jesus. As we look at Jesus and really listen and get a clearer picture of who he really is, we are awestruck. And I thank you so much that you sent Jesus for us. You had compassion and love for us when we did not deserve that. Lord, I thank you for offering this gift of eternal life that starts now and continues forever. And I know, Lord, that there are so many people in this world who have not yet received that gift, maybe some in this room. 
So God, I pray that you will use us as a church, use us as individuals, and I pray that you will speak directly to the hearts of those who need to receive this gift. And I pray that they'll accept it. I pray that each of us will trust in you to provide what we really need. And we know you know that far more than we do. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.